Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Amen. Thanks, Shelley. Good morning, church family. How are we? Good. It's good to see you. I would like to uh, just encourage and congratulate you that you are all uh, the wise people who did not go to the overcrowded campgrounds or go sit on stop and go traffic on the freeway this weekend. And so uh, thank you for being here. Uh, we have been as a church going through the book of Judges since the beginning of the year. And we find ourselves right at the end. We're going to look at the end of Samson's life here, the, 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 the conclusion of Samson. I mean, one of the most intriguing people really in world history, but particularly in the book of Judges. We're going to look at him. The next week and the following week, we have two basically epilogue type of stories, kind of a conclusion. They're not about any particular judge, but they are stories that just kind of show us, uh, typify for us what has been happening in the nation of Israel around that time. And there's lots of interesting things to glean and to learn from those stories. And so I hope you'll, you'll join us. Then we're going to have a few weeks of some guest uh, speakers, other friends from other churches. And then in the fall, we're going to launch into uh, a, a, a sermon series on spiritual gifts and how God has gifted and wired you. And I'm really excited to, to kind of dive into that. But today, we're going to look at Samson. And I'll be honest with you, uh, there's some challenging things to say in this. And uh, I would invite you to pray that God would ha- help us to all have soft hearts today. Uh, I'm going to pray for us before we do anything else. And I just invite you to pray for me as well. Um, getting over a cold. Uh, <laughs> accidentally had to remodel my kitchen this week. Uh, we had a pipe burst a little while ago. That's fun. And uh, also just dealing with some kind of heavier stuff uh, on the family side of things. So you guys can pray for me. I want to serve you well. And uh, I want to ask God to do what he wants to do here today. And so would you just join with me in prayer before we do anything else? God, we ask that you would make your grace known here in this room. God, as we gather in, however many people there are in this room, there's uh, dozens, hundreds, maybe even thousands of different things that could distract us or weigh upon us. So God, I ask that you'd help us all just to take a big deep breath right now and to, to let our hearts and our minds and our attention turn to you and not all of the other things that are just weighing on us. God, I, I pray for myself that you'd guard my lips and help me to only teach that which is in line with the truth of your word. And I pray for all of my friends who are here today, God, would you give us all soft and teachable hearts. We want to encounter the resurrected Savior. We want to experience his grace and mercy. And we pray this all in Jesus' good name. Amen. So just by way of recap, Samson's life and Samson's story, um, you'll remember a few few weeks ago, I guess four weeks ago, five weeks ago, we we met Samson for the first time and he had a rather miraculous birth. His mother was barren for a long time and this angel, actually not just any angel, the angel of the Lord came and announced to this woman, this barren woman, you're going to have a son. And he's going to be a Nazarite, and he's going to have this special vow. And so as we start the Samson story, we've got really high hopes. We've seen judge after judge after judge fail to live up to the hopes. But but boy, if we ever were set up with high hopes, Samson is the one. We see almost immediately that he is a man who is not disciplined in his pursuits, but he's a man who is led by his appetites and desires. And so that leads him to lust after a Philistine woman, to marry her, an ungodly marriage that he should not have been a part of. Uh, He was kind of double-crossed by the groomsmen, and it's a long and complicated story. You can go download that on the website and listen to that sermon. But but basically it leads to him torching almost an entire village in revenge for being betrayed by his wife's family. That leads to more confrontation with the Philistines, which leads him to becoming basically public enemy number one. They've, they've got a bounty on him. They want to take Samson down. He is not a friend of the Philistines, and they're, they're not happy about him. 
We see that Samson is, is basically just uh, completely led by his desires. And ultimately his desires lead him to the woman Delilah who seduces him, betrays him for money to hand him over, to find out the secret of his strength and to hand him over to the Philistines. And so now you see that Samson's been captured and he's had his eyes gouged out. One commentary actually said that they would likely take a hot iron and sear the inside of the eye sockets. So here's the man who said, get this woman for me for she is right in my eyes, now has no eyes. Here's the man who lusted after woman, after woman, after woman. Now he's grinding grain in the prison, which was considered the work in that society of women. Here's the man who loved to come and go, to be free, to do what he wants to do, even to the point of ripping the city gates off of Gaza, now imprisoned back in Gaza. 20 years going around being a menace to the Philistines and really now he's just at the lowest of the low. All of those high hopes, all of those expectations just kind of went down the drain. But if you'll remember last week, we ended on verse 22 with just a glimmer of hope. It said, but the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. And there's both humor and grace there. It's humorous because you ever seen somebody had their head shaved and it's all like growing back all kind of scruffy and scraggly. So here's eyeless, humiliated Samson with just like this scraggly looking hair growing back. But there's grace in there because I think the Philistines, I mean, they had to notice, right? Oh, we found the secret of his strength. It, was, it cost him 5,500 pieces of silver. It was, it was a big deal. Oh, we shaved his hair off. We actually finally captured him. Oh, his hair's growing back and, and they didn't do anything about it. They didn't keep shaving his head. Why? Because they didn't know God. <laughs> they underestimated Yahweh. They thought that it was all about Samson's faithfulness to God. They didn't realize it was actually about God's faithfulness to his people and to his promise. So, there's the setup, the final story. And, and I'm going to just tell you my big idea here because we see Samson kind of gets one more chance at the end of his life. One last chance to, to get it right. And I want us to avoid a really potentially serious pitfall. And I'll set it up and I'll explain more later. But here's the big idea. When we look at a story like this, we need to remember that God is not merely a God of second chances. He's a God of grace. And that's far better. I have heard actually this story and others like it preached. Isn't this nice that God's a God of second chances? And I would like to do some damage to that idea and actually hopefully replace it with something far better today. But I'll explain more later and you'll have to see if I actually was able to back up my claims. Verse 23, let's dive into the story together. Chapter 16, verse 23. Now the lords of the Philistines, you'll remember there are five lords of the Philistines, five major cities, city-states, and these are kings or lords or rulers, governors, however you want to call it. They, they gathered together to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and to rejoice. Not just any sacrifice, a great sacrifice. And they said, our god has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. So they're gathering everybody together for a, a big party, a big feast, a big sacrifice, specifically because they believe that their god Dagon has handed Samson over to him. And when the people saw him, they praised their god. For they said, our god has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country who has killed Many of us. You need to remember that, that this cycle, the, the, the judges cycle, we've seen many times over and again where the people of Israel, they worshiped foreign gods and the Lord let them become enslaved by foreign nations. They cried out and asked the Lord for help and redemption. God would raise up a judge. They would be delivered. There would be some peace and then they would just do the whole thing over again. But you remember this time with Samson, it's different. The people of Israel never cried out to the Lord for help. And nowhere throughout the story of Samson does he lead the people in battle. And actually, really, throughout the story of Samson, it, he's not even really trying to. Samson's not trying to help Israel. Samson is trying to get what's his. Samson, you know, Samson would be, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of person who's just like, I just live for myself. I want the hot women and the fast cars and big stacks of money. That's, that would be Samson. And, and, and like, not even 
not even apologizing for it. But meanwhile, God is using Samson's bullheadedness to confront the Philistines because the Israelites, at this point, they kind of don't even care. They really don't even care that they've been conquered by the Philistines. Samson makes himself this public nuisance. They, they find the secret of his strength. He's captured. And now they bring him out to parade him around and notice who they're giving the credit to. Who are the Philistines giving the credit to? Their God, Dagon. This is interesting. Let me read from the Holman Bible Dictionary. Dagon is a God associated with the Philistines. However, his origin was in Mesopotamia during the third millennium BC. So a very ancient God figure. By 2000 BC, a major temple was erected for him in the maritime city of Ugarit. Ugaritic commerce carried his cult into Canaan. That's the area where Israel is. When Canaan was still part of the Egyptian empire, when the Philistines conquered the coastal region of Canaan, they adopted Dagon as their chief deity. The name was probably derived originally from the word for grain or possibly from a word for clouds. Thus, Dagon was a grain god or a storm god, much like Baal. We've seen Baal before, right? Remember earlier in the story with Gideon and and God's doing battle against Baal? Now, here's where it gets interesting. According to Ugaritic documents, which, by the way, is a phenomenal phrase to use at Fourth of July barbecues this weekend, just trust me, you'll be the life of the party. According to these Ugaritic documents I was reading, according to Ugaritic documents from the 14th century BC, Dagon was the father of Baal. Little else is known about his mythology or cult. So here we have the book of Judges, like building and building and building to a confrontation. We, we met Baal, we met the other gods. It's like, it's like a video game where it's like you get to the final boss level, right? We found Bowser and no more is the princess in another castle. That's a super old reference and I'm really proud of it. It just came to me right now. The 9 a.m. service didn't get that treat. That was just for you guys. Here we have a clash, not just between the people of Israel and some foreign powers. This isn't a clash just between Samson and the Philistines. This is now a clash of gods. It is Yahweh versus Dagon, winner take all. And here the Philistines are celebrating and partying because they think that their God has won. Not over Samson, but over Samson's God. Did you see how Samson's character flaws and his failure to live in a God-honoring way has led the people of Philistines to, to mock not just Samson, but to mock the God of Israel. And so that leads me to my first point that I'd like to draw today is this. Your life is intended to display God's glory. And a the negative way of putting that is when our life does not display God's glory, we actually dishonor God and open up the reputation and the name and the character of our God to scorn. Look what the Bible says quickly, just Old Testament, New Testament. Uh, these references will be up on the website, but look at Isaiah 43, 7. It says, talking about everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. <coughs> that means that your life doesn't exist for you. You were specifically created by God to be able to display his glory. Like a, like a mirror would reflect the light of the sun. 1 Corinthians 6 in the New Testament. For Christians, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. If you're a Christian, you were redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus and your life, your very body doesn't even belong to you in the ultimate sense. You are a steward of it and you are to live for God's glory. First Peter 2, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So now we're talking about those, those who are not believers in God, those who are not worshipers of Jesus, looking in on your life. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. God on the day of visitation. Are you you tracking? This is a major theme throughout the course of the Bible. We were intended and meant by God in his created design to display his glory, to reflect his goodness, but because of sin and because of our fallen nature, none of us do that perfectly, do we? Samson's life, it's hard to find reflections of God's glory in his life. Let me ask you, where in your life 
does your character and your choices open up the reputation and character of God himself to scorn and ridicule? If we were to get out a magnifying glass, if we were to put out a chair up here and just ask you a lot of questions in front of everybody, I'm not going to do that unless you want to volunteer. Where in your life is God being glorified? And where in your life might you be like Samson opening up the God who loves us to scorn and ridicule? Think about, just think about this. You, you know these types of examples. This is uh, all over in our culture. Some prominent preacher or author or pastor or priest or somebody has some scandal or they fall, so to speak. What do people say? The culture, the broader culture, non-believers, they often commonly use that to take shots, not at the person themselves, but at God himself. Oh, see, this is why religion's a fraud. This is why I hate organized religion. This is why the church, this or that. Like the bride of Christ is maligned because of someone's sin and indiscretion. Now that's, that's a big public scandal sort of thing, but you, privately, individually. None of us is celebrities. But where is your life not bringing God the glory that he deserves? Let's continue on. Verse 25. And when their hearts were merry, uh, by now you know that that is Bible speak for they were drunk. (laughs) When their hearts were merry, they said, call Samson that he may entertain us. And I I don't think they meant like karaoke. (laughs) These are the people that are, you know, putting hot irons into people's eye sockets. They probably have pretty sadistic entertainment in mind. So they called Samson out of the prison. He entertained them. The Bible doesn't even give us any detail about what was happening. And they made him stand between the pillars. So there's big pillars in this temple area that they're at. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, let me, let me feel the pillars on which the house rests that I may lean, lean against them. And we know, if you know the story, you know Samson has an idea in mind. I'm guessing they let him lean against the pillars, A, because they didn't understand that his strength was coming back. B, they probably just thought he was weak and tired from grinding grain and being imprisoned. Let me lean against those pillars. Now, the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there. This is total speculation, but I've wondered if maybe Delilah was there as well. She's not from this city, but she did just receive a ton of money and she was elevated by the lords of the Philistines themselves to you know, high society, ruling class. I don't know. It's complete speculation on my part. Just something interesting to think about. All the lords of the Philistines were there and on the roof, so there's like a roof or kind of a balcony, if you will, sort of area around it, there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. So you have the main floor of the temple, you have like a roof balcony with 3,000 people in it. Who who knows exactly how many people, but a lot. This would be, by the way, this would be kind of the equivalent of uh, on inauguration day when we gather, you know, the former president and first lady, the new president and first lady, all the congressmen, the chief justice, like everybody is right there in one spot when we inaugurate a new president, right? It's kind of like that. Then Samson, verse 28. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God. The word Lord there is is actually Yahweh, the covenant name of God. And God actually is a little bit different. It's not Elohim, it's, it's Adonai. It means master. O Yahweh, my master, please remember me. And please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. We're going to come back to this verse in just a minute. Think about that. That's the, that's the final prayer that Samson prays. What do you see there? What's going on? Verse 29, And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines, and then he bowed with all his strength. And the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. And through this very, very imperfect vessel, God brings justice 
to a very wicked group of people who were themselves persecuting a rebellious group of people that God loved. Now let me ask you this question. Was Samson contrite in that prayer? When you, when you look at this prayer, go, go back if you would to that, uh, that next prayer. Samson called the Lord, said, O Lord God, please remember me, strengthen me, only this once, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my eyes. On the first glance, you look at that prayer and you say, he is not very contrite. He just wants vengeance. They took my eyes, Lord. Let me get them. Remember the Alamo kind of a cry. Like, let me just do this for my eyes, Lord. And some would say that even in his death, he's not really genuinely humble, contrite. He's just asking for God to get even with the Philistines. I would say to you, there's a few other things happening here that, that show me that Samson is genuinely contrite, albeit not perfectly. By the way, who of us is ever perfectly contrite or humble or repentant? He says, Lord God, Yahweh Adonai, Yahweh my master. This is the first time he's spoken to God this way. First time he's used those specific Hebrew words, showing that he, he, he views God being above him instead of, for most of Samson's life, him being above God. He says, remember me. That is the language of covenant. If you do a word search on, on, on remember me, it, it happens literally hundreds of times in the Old Testament. And over and over and over again, it's the Lord remembered his people. The Lord remembered his covenant. Oh Lord, remember me. When he uses that phrase, that's the language of relationship. Actually, not just any relationship, covenantal relationship. And he says, strengthen me only this once. Remember how Samson has always been presuming upon God? Remember when Delilah actually finally shaved his head? It says he stood up and he said, I'll just, I'll just break free like I did before. But here he says, God, I'm just asking this one time. I don't, I, I don't think he's presuming on God's grace anymore. And he knows he's going to die. He says, Lord, let me die. Let me die with the Philistines. This one last act. And then he says, yeah, because I'm also kind of PO'd about them taking my eyes. I, I think that there's genuine contrition here mixed with some attitude. It's pretty good for Samson, actually, when you think about it. Actually, there's one final evidence, and that would be the New Testament witness. If you remember, about a year ago when we were in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11 preached on the heroes of the faith. And there's, there's, there's a passage that says, time would fail to tell me of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets, who through, what's the word, Sound City? Faith. Conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Now look, look, the author of Hebrews, when he's putting these people up there, the, the Bible's very honest. All of those people in that list are at different times of their lives a colossal train wreck. Amen? Like David, like the best one of the bunch, he's got, his story is horrible. Samson, like nobody's trying to turn a blind eye to their failures, but the author of Hebrews is saying, yeah, there, there was faith there though. There was some genuine faith. Samson had some type of genuine, I believe, contrition, humility, and faith right at the end of his life to bring God's judgment upon this wicked nation. Verse 31, then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtaol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had judged Israel 20 years. And thus ends the life of the last judge in the book of Judges. Daryl Block, one scholar, says this, Samson's story is filled with irony. No other deliverer in the book of Judges matches his potential, yet Samson accomplishes less on behalf of his people than any of his predecessors. Though Samson is impressive as an individual, he turns out to be anything but a military hero. He never leads Israel out in battle, never engages the Philistines in martial combat, never experiences a military victory. All his accomplishments are personal, all his victories private. On the one hand, he is born and buried as a hero, but on the other, he is a bandit, a trickster, and one who frivolously fritters away his extraordinary calling and gifts. One other guy, Trent Butler, says this, Samson leaves us 
without easy answers and without easy sermons. Thanks, Samson. But he forces us to contemplate deeply the meaning of being God's chosen and participating in God's mission, even in the depths of human weakness and even human addiction. What are, we, what, are we, what are we supposed to think of when we think of Samson? One thing that I touched on last week, but I, I want to come back to it again this week, it's important to notice because when it, when it says here this, this, this phrase, God's chosen, being God's chosen, that kind of jumped off the page at me because I mentioned it last week that, that Samson was actually serving as a mirror of Israel themselves. Samson's life, when you look at his life and his story, it parallels pretty remarkably the life of Israel. You think about the miraculous birth. Samson had this miraculous birth, right? A a barren mother, an angelic announcement. Actually, if you go back earlier in the story of Genesis, there was a miraculous birth at the beginning of the nation of Israel. Abraham and Sarah were like 90 billion years old and the angel of the Lord came to them and said, you're going to have a baby. And they actually laughed and they said, how's it, you know, how's this, how are we going to have a son? And the angel says, no, you're going to have a, not just a son, but I'm going to turn your, your, your offspring into a great nation. Samson was set apart as holy. He lived by this, this particular code of righteousness, this Nazarite vow. Actually, the Israelites lived by a particular holiness code too, didn't they? It's called the books of Deuteronomy and Leviticus. They, they had supernatural strength. Samson obviously had supernatural physical strength. But think about Israel, this ragtag group of nomads coming in out of the desert with hardly any weapons. And they conquered Jericho, the giant walled city. They went and took over the whole region of Canaan. God, God gave them supernatural strength and supernatural victories. Although both Samson's story and Israel's story, they're mar- marked by almost near constant unfaithfulness. Samson with his adultery and his lust for women. Israel with their spiritual adultery and their worship of idols. Samson was ridiculed by the Philistines at the end of his life. Israel was ridiculed by her enemies when when God removed them, took them into exile. After centuries, literally centuries of God's patience and forbearance and grace, he said, enough! I'm removing you from this promised land that I gave to you. And it says in, in places like Jeremiah and and uh, Lamentations, that it's be- the, the, the nation of Israel has become an object of scorn to the other nations. And Samson's story ends with this death that kind of has some victory mixed in with it, but it's pretty disappointing. This, the story of Israel in the Old Testament is the story of, of, of death, of exile, and it, it kind of has a return. If you read like Ezra and Nehemiah, they, they do get to go back, but it's just kind of pathetic. It doesn't go as, as grand as they'd hoped it would. Samson is meant to hold up a mirror to Israel and and, and Gentiles, those of you who are Jewish, keep listening, but Gentiles, we've been grafted in as the people of God. Where does our story mirror that of Israel? Where do we fall into these patterns of unfaithfulness? Where has God given us gifts and even strength in areas and, and, and we fall prey to idolatry? I want to, I want to draw out a couple of other points really quickly from this story. I already talked about our lives being for God's glory, but here's, here's something I think that's really important to learn from the life of Samson. It's this. Please don't be the kind of person that has to learn everything the hard way. Let's, let's, let's not be like Samson. It seems like Samson's story, he spent his whole life ignoring God's ways, ignoring God's wisdom. He seems like that kind of person who is just uh, bent on running his head into a concrete wall, <laughs> time and time again, saying, I'll get it better next time. Actually, he doesn't even really seem like that. He, he's, he's kind of unteachable, isn't he? He doesn't even really engage in much self-reflection. Oh, that didn't go well. Maybe I shouldn't go see prostitutes in the middle of the night and have to rip the gates off and escape with my life. He just kind of runs around and does his own thing, and he has to learn everything the hard way. He has to learn things through pain and suffering and difficulty. In my life, don't raise your hand, but you, you may have known people like this. Heck, you may be one of these types of people. I have heard people essentially brag about having to be the type of person that has to learn things the hard way. Like it's this badge of honor. Well, you know, you just gotta, gotta get out there and make a few mistakes and you gotta kind of run into some things and you gotta, you know, you gotta break a few eggs to make a quiche or whatever it is and you're just like... <laughs> 
omelet? Is that what it is? Like you, it's just kind of like, it becomes this almost like this bravado or prideful thing. Like, yeah, I just, one landmine after another, just keep stepping. I'm like, hold on a second. Hold on a second. Listen, (laughs) if you are a Christian, God is so good and so loving and so sovereign that yes, he will use even the trials, the difficulties, the mistakes in your life, he's going to use them for your good and for his glory. He's going to shape you, change you, grow you. But like a good father, like a loving heavenly father, God's preference is that you would learn through wisdom. That you would learn through teaching, knowledge, instruction, wisdom. There are entire books of the Bible called the wisdom literature that are really just chock full of just practical life instructions to help us navigate. Actually, in Ecclesiastes 7, this is one of the wisdom books of Solomon. Solomon writes, For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. So here, knowledge and wisdom are used kind of interchangeably or parallel. But isn't that an interesting thing that Solomon says? Look, if you have wisdom, your life is going to get preserved in some ways. And Solomon says, it's kind of like having money. Now, quick show of hands. How many of you have ever been at a point in your life where you really just didn't have enough money? Raise your hands. Be honest, okay? How did that feel? How did, were you, were you happy? Were you joyful? He's just like, I'm just rejoicing in the Lord always. And again, I say, brother, rejoice. Liars, okay? You are stressed. You're frustrated. You're focused on that. It takes your attention. There's other things you need to do in life. You need to raise your kids. You need to love your spouse. You need to focus on things that maybe work or whatever. You got projects at home to fix up. You got relational strength. But all you can think about when the money is not there, it's like, man, things are really hard. Now, money doesn't solve everything. Money doesn't make it so that you're going to have a pain-free or a trouble-free life. But if you do have some money, it certainly helps. Amen? If you have wisdom, It does not mean that you're going to escape all of life's bumps and bruises, but it certainly helps, does it not? Like a loving father, God would rather that you learn through teaching, knowledge, instruction, wisdom, the scriptures, the spirit, community. There's actually a verse I should have put on the screen, but it just came to me. There's a verse in the book of James that says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask. And it says that God will give you Wisdom generously without reproach. And I love that. Like without reproach, no scolding, no shaming. You come to God, say, God, I need wisdom. He's not going to say, yeah, you dummy. Of course you need some wisdom. And here you come groveling again. It's like, no, like, thank you for coming and asking me. Let me just say yes. This is kind of a weird analogy. But if one of my kids comes to me and they say, dad, could I please have some green vegetables and broccoli? The answer to that is pretty much always going to be yes. Like, it's good for you. You come to me and you ask for like candy or one of those, like, what are those fun dip things with a stick and the cocaine powder? And it's like, no, like, you know, like, those are terrible. My kids ask for that kind of stuff. If my kids come to me and say, like, can I please have kale? I'm like, you're weird, but yes, you may have kale because it's green leafy vegetables. It's healthy for you. I know it's a weird analogy, but when we go to God, how many of our prayers are like the grown up version of asking God for fun dip? But if you go to, this is weird, I'm sorry, but it, but it works, doesn't it? It works. You go to God asking for wisdom. God, help me learn, help me to understand, help me to have knowledge. God's gonna not say no to you. He's going to say yes. He's going to say yes. Friends, let's be teachable. Again, I wanna remind you, if you are in a situation where you've royally messed up, you can come to God trusting that he's gonna use that catastrophe, that mess, that pain, Loving discipline, the book of Hebrews chapter 12 calls it. He's going to use that, but, but God's preference, like a good father, is that you learn through wisdom. If, if you are, this is particularly applicable for, for those of you who maybe are on the younger side of things, you're, you're, you're farther away from the end of your life than you are closer to it because you've got time, you've got opportunities to make changes, to make corrections. Oh God, I want to learn from wisdom, not to learn the hard way. Let me say to this, though, for those of you who are maybe older, or you've got a few more um, miles on the tires, you've walked down some paths that you're just not proud of, and you feel like maybe you're even stuck a little bit. Let me just say to you clearly, from the life of Samson, it's never too late to cry out to God. It is never too late to turn to God in humility, contrition, repentance, to say, God, I have messed up. 
I've squandered years of my life. I've squandered opportunities you've given to me. I've squandered relationships that you've blessed me with. Friends, hear me today. Please do not allow the lies of shame and regret to keep you from turning to God. Some people would say things like, and I've heard people say things, it's just too late. I've already made such a mess. Listen, listen. If somebody came to you and they're, they're having major health issues and say, hey, you need to get on an exercise plan and you need to get on a, on a healthy eating plan. And they say to you, people say this kind of stuff too. It's, it's probably just too late for me. And I would say to you, it's not too late. And we see those types of transformation stories all the time and, you know, on TV shows or fitness magazines. How much more so with spiritual things, the God who doesn't just, doesn't just uh, you know, help us a little bit, but the God who raises the dead, how much more could he do with what time you do have left? Friends, it is never too late. It is never too late to cry out to God, amen? Until it is too late. We don't know when we'll take our last breath, do we? This is a, a little bit morbid, but I've already talked about fun dip and broccoli, so let me just go there. I was reading the article about the, the new texting and driving law. You guys know what I'm talking about? You, you know what I'm talking about. You read it on your phones when you're driving here, okay? <laughs> There's the new texting and driving law there in the state of Washington. They're calling driving under the influence of electronics, and they're majorly ratcheting up the fines. You can't even hold your phone in your hand at a stoplight. You need one of those hands-free devices. And so, like, okay, that's, that's, that's good, and we all know texting and driving is lethal. The thing that is in the article that shocked me was they said they have studies that show fully one-tenth of the drivers on the road have their phone in their hands at any given moment. Maybe it's not shocking to you. You're like, I thought it'd be more. Maybe it's shocking to me. One out of every ten drivers around you, so there's 40 cars around you, four people are doing this. You don't know that you're going to make it home today after this church service. We don't know when our last breath is. We don't know when we're going to stand before our maker. So there will be a point when it's too late, but today, right now, today, while you have breath in your lungs, it is not too late to cry out to God, particularly for any of you here today who are not followers of Jesus. You never trusted in him for salvation. I'm, I'm pleading with you in earnest, sincere love, Whatever you've done, wherever you've been, God's grace is bigger. Now let me say this. I want to circle back around to my big idea that I said at the beginning. God is not merely a God of a second chance. He's a God of grace. Because, all right, here, here's, here's, where, this, here's where this can go astray. Well-meaning, but potentially biblically unfaithful, and even spiritually harmful. So here's where this can go astray. Isn't this a wonderful, nice story about God giving Samson a second chance at the end of his life to get things right and to do it all right? And isn't this wonderful? God is a God of second chances. And I've heard that preached. I've heard that song sung by animated vegetables. I have, I've, <laughs> I've, 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 I've heard that. Now, if, when you say that, if you mean when I mess up or when I sin, God still loves me and he doesn't give up on me. That's true. And I affirm that. That's great. But there's some, there's some things I think that often are communicated that are hurtful and harmful. So if you're telling me God is a God of second chances, what if I need a third chance? I know people, not going to name names, I've known people who royally screwed up their lives, met Jesus, had a radical transformation, started going on a good path, and then royally screwed up their lives again. What should I tell them? Sorry, God is a God of second chances and you used up your one get out of jail free card. Also, I think it can miscommunicate because a lot of times we think of God's as God of second chances in terms of like the big screw ups, you know, like the, the Charlie Sheen meltdowns and the, you know, you wrapped your car around a telephone pole in a drunken stupor sort of a thing, right? Like that, what about your crummy attitude yesterday? What about your lust after that, that, that person that you were watching? What about your covetous heart? What about all day, every day, these little ongoing sin issues that God is working on? Do you need a second, third, fourth, fifth, 75th, 175th chance? How many, how many, I think you, I think we underestimate the, the depths of our sin issue. And number three, 
if by God is a God of second chances, you mean to tell me that I get a second chance to be righteous? I get a second chance to do the impossible? No, thank you. Hey, dear kindergartner, I'm, I'm really glad that you tried your best on this calculus exam. I, I know you failed it. You got literally no questions right, but I've got great news. You get a second chance. How dumb is that? Oftentimes what gets communicated, this idea of God's a God of second chances, is you messed up, God comes and wipes the slate clean. Here's your second chance. Don't you dare screw it up again. That needs to be repudiated with extreme aggression. Because I don't need a second chance to do what is impossible in my flesh and in my sin nature to do. I need a miracle of God's grace. And actually, what's amazing is when you look at the life of Samson, we already saw how it paralleled with Israel, but think about how Samson's life parallels with Jesus, the one who actually did the impossible on my behalf. Like Samson, Jesus had a miraculous birth announcement. And, and by the way, his mother was a virgin. That, that's like seeing Samson and just raising big time, going all in. Like Samson, he was set apart from birth to be holy. Jesus lived a perfectly holy life before the face of his heavenly father. Like Samson, Jesus had supernatural strength. No, it wasn't physical strength to beat up his enemies, but he had strength to forgive his enemies, to heal the sick, to cast out demons, to raise the dead, to even command the wind and the waves to shut up. That's literally what it says in the Greek. Supernatural strength. Oh, but here's, here's where things go a little different, huh? Where Samson was unfaithful, where Israel was unfaithful, Jesus was and is perfectly faithful. And yes, Jesus was mocked and scorned and ridiculed by his enemies as he hung on the cross, just like Samson was mocked and scorned. And when he died, well, for Samson, that was the end of the story. But I have great news to tell you, church. When Jesus died on that cross, what, what, what the enemies of Jesus thought was Jesus' greatest moment of failure was actually his greatest moment of triumph because there on the cross, he paid the price for our sins. And then on the third day, he rose from the grave, proving that everything he ever said was true. And friends, Jesus is alive today. Samson is dead, but Jesus is alive. Is that good news to you? So listen to me, listen to me. I don't need a second chance. I need, I need what this Jesus has for me. God's, God's not a God of second chances. God is a God of substitutionary atonement, having Jesus die a death that I deserve in my place. I, I don't need a God of second chances. I need a God of imputed righteousness who says, I'm going to gift you the righteousness that Jesus himself possesses. I don't need a God of second chances. I need a God of justification who slams down the gavel on the judge's desk and says, not guilty because of what Jesus did. I don't need a God of second chances so that I could somehow get my life all the way right to the end. I need a God of grace who providentially works all things according to the counsel of his will for his glory and for my good. That's the God that I need, amen? Listen, I, I love you. I really do. And the last thing in the world that I want to do is have you come in here today with all your heavy burdens and all your heavy weights and all the things that you're carrying and come in and say, isn't it nice that Jesus gives us a second chance? Now go out of here and keep trying harder. I don't know what you're facing this week. I don't know everybody in this room. I don't know every situation that's going on, but I know there's some burdens. I've got some burdens. The highlight of my week was having to tear out my kitchen after a pipe broke. In the lower lights, I won't get all the details, but I mean, I had my heart broken this week with a kid that came into our house through foster care, lived with us for a year, and is now gone because someone else made that decision. I got burdens this week. You got burdens this week. What's going on with you? Maybe it's the weight of your own sin, stuff you screwed up and got yourself into. Maybe it's just circumstances, stuff you didn't even ask for. What are you, what are you thinking of right now? Think of it. I, I dare you. Give yourself permission. What's, what is it? All sorts of weights, all sorts of heavy burdens. We don't need some raw, raw pep talk to tell us good news. You get a second chance to try again. You need God's grace right now here in this room. Like, I mean it for real, not like 
oh yeah, I need to think about God's grace. Like right now, right now. And God just stir us up a little bit right now. God, would you break down our walls, stir us up a little bit. We'd stop showing up to church, stop showing up to community group with this facade, trying to act like we've got it all together. Oh, I just, all I need is one more try, God. This time I'll really get it right. What's that, what's that backpack, that 300-pound bag of rocks you're carrying around? Need a miracle of God's grace? I got good news in Jesus, it's yours. Stumbled upon this verse this week, Psalm 86. Um, Think of that God of the second chances idea as we read this verse. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love. How many is abounding? More than two, we'll just say that. (laughs) Abounding in steadfast love to who? All who call upon you. You You want to call upon the Lord? Call upon him. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Psalmist said, I'm going to do it. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. Father, we bring our burdens before you right now. Nobody in this room knows everything that's going on, even in our own lives, but Jesus, we trust that you do. So we bring our burdens before you, we bring our heavy weights before you. God, whether it's self-inflicted or just the hardships of life, We bring all these heavy weights to you right now. We bring these weights to the God who said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavily burdened, and I'll give you rest for your soul. We come to you now. God, we hope in the cross of Jesus and the grace that was shown to us there. Our hope is not in our own efforts. Our hope is not in our own strength or our ability to get it all right and cleaned up and get that second chance. God, our hope is in you and your grace. Thank you that your love never fails on us. You're abounding in steadfast love. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, take a big deep breath. It's like... uh, Like when I'm failing for words, Aaron, is that you? Yeah. I'm, <laughs> uh, let's respond to God. Stay engaged in this moment here. I want to invite the financial stewards to collect our offering now. We're going to give, not out of some duty or obligation or ritual. We're going to give as worship to God. I want to invite you to give as worship to God. This is probably... If it's hard for you to give, this might be one of those areas where God's inviting you to say, hey, this is an area where your life needs to honor me and give me glory. So I want to invite you to practice generosity from that pure and sincere heart. We invite our younger students class to join us here. And while they're collecting the offering, I'm going to read a few discussion questions, things to help us uh, this week as we meet up in, in various small groups. What areas of your life are not giving God honor and glory? What is God asking you to do about it? How, how's that for a straightforward question this week in group? Well, where are you terrible? Okay, here's my. Let's just be honest and vulnerable. Let the Spirit bring those things to mind. <laughs> Try to avoid telling other people theirs. Uh, how can we help one another learn from the wisdom that God gives so we don't have to learn life's lessons the hard way? Number three, where in your life have you experienced that loving discipline of the Lord? How can we help each other remember God's love in the middle of pain or difficulties? And number four, The cross, the cross, the cross shows us that God is not simply a God of second chances. He is a God of grace. How does this truth encourage, challenge, and help you? And then number one, for prayer points, we want to be a praying people. And, And pray prayers of gratitude and praise. 
thanking God that he does much more than just give us a second chance. Actually, we're going to sing in just a minute. I'll invite our musicians to come. This is an opportunity as we start singing to do just that, to worship God. And number two, pray by name for people who need to know the love and the grace of God before it's too late in their lives. Can you, can you think of people in your lives that need to experience this grace? They're, they're, running, the, they're running on the treadmill carrying the, the heavy burden. Who are those people in your life that God wants you to pray for by name? They're going to pass out the elements for communion here. We're going to celebrate the Lord's table. I'll ask you to hold on to this for a moment. In just a minute, the musicians, they'll play quietly, instrumentally. You can celebrate the Lord's table and then they'll invite you to stand and sing. But let's, let's focus our hearts on this, this gift of God's grace right here. 1 Corinthians 11 says, The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. For you. Your sins, your flaws, your mistakes, your errors, your shortcomings, this is for you, friends. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That that verse is interesting. Friends, we celebrate the Lord's table together every single week. Um, Other churches do it differently. Some do it, you know, more, more periodically for us. Our conviction is we need to do this every single week because I don't know about you. For me, it's easy to forget about the gospel. I drift back into, I need that second chance and I'm going to do it this time, God. Nope. Broken body, shed blood every week. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Take a minute, reflect. God, where have I been walking in pride? Where have I been more like Samson than I care to admit? Where do you want to have me carry these burdens to you? When you're ready, I'll invite you to eat and drink and then stand to your feet and sing with the musicians as they lead us in song and praise and worship. Let me pray. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the miracle of your grace. I ask and pray right now, God, that we would shift our mindset and shift our thinking from just needing a second chance to needing your grace constantly and being thankful that you are abounding in steadfast love and mercy and grace. Help us this week, Lord God, as we sing to truly come to you like like with a heart of prayer and thanksgiving. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.